Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 89 from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell. Our daily show, Downtown, originates from here Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. Streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We are brought to you here on the podcast and on our radio program by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And this week, uh, boy, we have fun. I, we talked to so many interesting people on the show, Carrie, but I, I don't know that we ever have more fun than when we delve into uh, some of these classic television shows. And this week, uh, we look at two of them, uh, MASH and Little House on the Prairie, for two very interesting conversations. Yes, uh, both shows I grew up watching, uh, more MASH than Little House, uh, but those shows hold a special place and to sort of be able to talk to the people that were involved as as it was being produced. Uh, It's always a great time. We've had a lot of folks from MASH on the show through the years, from uh, Mike Farrell to Loretta Swit, of course, and uh, this time around we talked with Jeff Maxwell, Private Igor, who was on the show for every season, 83 episodes along the way. And he's got a great new podcast called MASH Matters. And we'll talk with him about that, his experiences on the show in the second half of the podcast this week. But up first, actress, uh, activist, author, and comedian Allison Arngrim. What's it like to play one of the most hated characters in the history of television? Nellie Olson, who got on the nerves of everybody, certainly... Certainly the Ingalls family. In the course of the long run of Little House on the Prairie, she has uh, she has used that to her advantage. She embraced the hate of that character. Uh, it gave her strength during a difficult time in her life. She transformed it into a stand-up comedy act and now a one-woman show and a memoir that she wrote a number of years ago called Confessions of a Prairie Bitch. We had a great time talking with Allison Arngrim of Little House on the Prairie. Allison, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. You got uh, you got some busy things happening in your life here. You've got a birthday coming up, an early happy birthday to you, and a trip to France where we know from the book they absolutely love you. It's true. They are. It's crazy. I mean, Little House in the Prairie is just over the years has become more and more popular all over the world. But the French, uh, they love it, and I find um, they they kind of like Nellie Olson best. Um, I think I think they don't think she's mean. They think she's French. <laughs> well, I was late, and I don't know why I was late to reading your book because it came out a number of years ago. But I'm yeah. so glad I got to it. It was. It was laugh out loud funny. It was poignant. It was inspiring in so many ways as well. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm so pleased, and that's something I've noticed. I I go on Amazon. I'm like, these some of these reviews are from last week. <laughs> People are still buying it. They're still ordering Amazon. Whenever I go to an event or a show, you know, and and I had a, a an edition come out in France, and even at the shows I'm doing in France, I have to have a stack of them on the table. People just can't get enough of it. Well, I want to talk about your background. You've uh, had uh, a more than interesting life. And, and let's start at the beginning. Is it safe to say that your parents had a unique relationship? I think to put it mildly. I mean, that's the thing. You know, as, as they used to say, we'd, you know, we'd go to parties in the 70s and 80s. They'd laugh and say, your parents invented parties like this. <laughs> um, usually people of older parents think of them, people who married in the 50s as being very stodgy. But um, no, and this is. They met back in the theater in Canada, 
And uh, but my father was openly, well, openly bisexual to my mother. I don't think the neighbors knew in the fifties and sixties, <laughs> but um, my mother did, and they thought this was just completely hunky dory. Uh, your mom was an incredibly talented and and successful voiceover artist was the voice of Casper and Gumby, Sweet Polly Purebred. And I, I didn't know until reading the book, she was also on the first family album with Maine native Von Meter. Yes, that's right. He's from Maine. People remember this, the first family album. It's become iconic because the, the cover artwork where it's photoshopped that they're all standing in front of the White House. And you see this picture and there's what appears to be a young woman with a balloon who obviously is doing the children's voices, that's my mom. She's like 40 in that picture, <laughs> just, you know, 22 or something. But, um, yeah, my mother was the voice of Caroline and John John on the album where Vaughn Meter was portraying JFK. And there's actually, for a collector, two albums, the famous one, and there was First Family 2 where they had a lot of songs, they had parody songs and things. Unfortunately, it was released just a couple of weeks before the assassination. And so most people do not own a copy of the number two album. One of the so find one, speak collector. Well, exactly. Uh, one of the most uh, difficult parts of the book to read, and obviously difficult for you to experience and, and write about, is the fact that you were assaulted for many years by your brother. Was it important for you to, to talk about that and get it out there in the world? Yeah, because what I found out in in as I, over the years I started talking about this is. It is so common. I mean, when you talk to people who work in child abuse, they will tell you flat out that, unfortunately, the majority of abuse cases, sexual abuse cases, the victim knows the, the attacker, the abuser is known to the victim in 85, 90% of the cases. And in the majority of cases, it's a family member. It's the father or the stepfather or the grandfather or the brother or the uncle. I actually had a uh, defense attorney during, it was during a radio show where our show together, a defense attorney actually tell me that in 25 years of working on the defense for people being tried for sexual abuse, he had never had a case where it wasn't the father. Wow. Now, that's a pretty horrifying and damning statement, but apparently this is it. it and when I have told started talking about having been abused, a number of people said, they were abused by their brother or stepbrother, and they didn't know who to tell. They said, well, everyone talks about the father stepfather, but it was my grandpa or it was my brother, and, and they didn't know who to tell. And it's, Families often leave their children with someone they trust, and they think, okay, I didn't hire a babysitter from outside. It was a close family friend. It's a relative. What could possibly go wrong? And unfortunately... Most people who are sexually abused are sexually abused by a close family friend or relative. And that makes the law that you helped overturn in California all that more mind-boggling to me that under the provisions of this law, these child protection laws that you worked with the protect.org people to defeat, there was almost an exemption made for people who were close relatives and what even personal friends. It's absolutely the craziest thing in the world, and it's in it's in a lot of states. It was in we knocked it out of about seven states. We managed to change this law in California, New York, and several other states. But it's extremely common to have an exception made in the uh, sexual abuse uh, jail census for people who are related to the victim, which is crazy because it's not an exception the majority of time. It's it's going to be a relative, or as they said. In the law, they actually coded this law, or someone living in the home like a family member. And I thought, good Lord, does that mean house guests, boarders? I mean, who are you including here? And 
In California, the most egregious offenses, I mean, all the worst stuff, continuous abuse, multiple victims, all of this was included. But then it would say, but a person could be eligible for probation with absolutely no time served and even deferred entry of judgment where, where they have no record. That person has no record after being convicted of multiple counts of sexual abuse only because it's a relative. Um, so we, we managed to change that in California and, and several other states, but it's, it's still going on. It's a major problem. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of deep-seated in the law that people are just, they're in such denial. There's people who don't want to believe that it's the relatives. And so people who are convicted sex offenders and their attorneys can swoop in and create these kind of loopholes in the law. Well, when you decided to go public in a big way by sharing your story on Larry King, I mean, maybe my favorite moment of the book, the reaction of your dad when you told him. Yes, because, well, as I said, my family, kind of nuts and very in show business. And my father, my manager, was so absolutely, his head was so completely into the publicity. I say, There's a chapter about my father called The Publicity Seeking Missile. He was so obsessed with showbiz and publicity that when I called him to tell him I was going public on Larry King about being sexually abused, instead of being worried about what people would think or, or being, oh, my God, you poor thing, he went, oh, wait, you have the whole hour? Is it just you on Larry King? It's you. Who else is on? You're on for the whole hour? Oh, my God, I'm throwing a party. I need to call a caterer. He began discussing calling a caterer to have people in because he was so excited that, well, I was on CNN for an entire hour. This was a great goo. And I was like, you do understand what I just said I was going to be talking about. And he's like, yes, yes, of course. Well, that's very – you should be doing that. Oh, my God, the whole hour. And it took him hours to come down from the sort of the ceiling of this is an incredible press moment that she has gotten the hour to, <laughs> oh, my God, my daughter is telling this story. We're talking with Allison Arngrim here on Downtown. Uh, so many wonderful stories about the making of A Little House on the Prairie and, and the people involved in that. I, I was very happy to, to learn what an incredible mensch Melissa Gilbert is. Yes, yes. Absolutely, yes. We we got along like a house of fire. She's like my little sister, and uh, and and she's a really cool person. It's funny because you know she wound up becoming president of the Screen Actors Guild. Mm. And I, I tell a story in the book. She was organizing the actors when she was nine and ten years old. When you know the stage mothers would start rumors and try to pit the child actors against each other, she would call a meeting in her dressing room and have us all in and say, "Okay, we need to nip this in the bud right now. We have to stick together." And so when, when she wound up becoming an organizer for the actors union, well, well, that's not surprising. You had a great response when people asked you, uh, did you love Michael Landon? Did he love you? And, and you didn't talk about love. You talked about respect. Yes, and that's so rare. And it's rare in, in Hollywood. And, and, and for child actors, it's, it's unheard of. Very often child actors, you know, it's the nature of the business. Sometimes as a child you're cast because you have the right color hair. You, they've hired two people to play the parents, and they want a kid who looks like them. And that the the main factor in your getting the job is not necessarily your performance, but are you short and do you look like the the people who've been hired to play your parents? And and that that can be a little difficult. But um, they're often treated as props, and so a lot of child actors will tell you that they were treated like the furniture on the shows that they were on. It was very difficult for them. But on Little House. All of us found that we were treated with an enormous amount of respect, that we were, we were held very accountable. We were expected to do the work 
and New Orleans and like like a grown person, like and, you know, we were treated as actors. And um, well, I tell the story that the, the guy, the assistant director, he wanted to hand out candy and gum <laughs> to the kids at the end of the day because we had so many children with the atmosphere of the school kids, the extras. And he said, and Michael asked him to stop doing it. And said, no, no. He said, they don't need gum. They're, they're actors. They, they, they get their paycheck at the end of the week. Or they're not, but they're not trained animals. And he said, I don't want them doing that because it's not, it's not really respectful. They're, they're not little trained dogs that you have to give a treat to. They're, they're adults. They're like adults in that respect. They're actors. And I expect them to be doing their job because they're doing their job. Uh, Melissa Sue Anderson was this I guess we'd say a tough nut to crack you you tried <laughs> a lot of people tried uh, at the end of the book you expressed hope that someday maybe she would come around as that happened uh, not completely but you know we had a cast reunion thing in gosh uh, 2014 uh, was our uh, uh, 40th reunion we just had our 45th reunion crazy wow. 45th anniversary and our 40th reunion a group of us were on the today show in new york and we came and melissa sue anderson at the last minute she's agreed to show up we're sure melissa sue anderson is coming and we said well what on earth some of us hadn't talked to an agent so what is this gonna be like and you know she was so nice she was nice all day and of course, it's terrible to say, but we were sort of turning to each other after the first two hours and going, she's been nice for two hours. What's gotten into her? But I don't know if it's because she, you know, she moved to Montreal. She's very happy with her husband. Maybe the pressure of show business, she didn't feel quite as pressured to be perfect and on all the time. I don't know. But she that day, she seemed terribly relaxed. And seemed very happy uh, on the day of her 40th anniversary. So we said, there's hope, there's hope for her. <laughs> Allison, do you, do you think the respect that you were talking about that Michael Landon sort of uh, showed to the, the child actors of the series really helped with the success of a show that was so focused on the, child's as, on the children as the story of the show? Absolutely. I mean, people to this day, I mean, that's what I mean, 45 years, who the heck's watching a show 45 years later? But there they are. I mean, it just blows my mind. Um, 45 years later, and it's, it's all over the world. And, and I ask people, you know, people in Sri Lanka and you know, uh, all over the world watching the show, I'm like, how, why are you into Little House Numbers? It makes no sense. And I ask them, why, why, why? And they have this emotional bond with the show. And you wouldn't have that if the children's performances were overly canned or trite and not realistic, mm -hmm. people would not have been sucked into it and be crying at every episode. There was something very real and very raw and emotional about a lot of the children's performances that made an impact, so it wasn't just the adults. If it was too fake, if the kids were just hitting their mark and saying a cute line, it would not have worked. And I think that's why all these years later, we have not only people going back and watching, but people weren't even born when this thing was on and they're watching it now they're watching it on, it's streaming on amazon and i'm just blown away every single day when i, I find out this is happening and but i think it is it is absolutely it's the direction of michael land and it's the performances and it just it holds up speaking of reaction obviously a huge reaction to nelly olson the first time you realized what that reaction might be if i remember from the book it was when you were you were going to school and somebody yelled at you from across the school grounds this, this is horrifying but true um 
I, you know, I, I knew I was playing the villain, and I, once I got the role, I was like, oh, wow, this is crazy. Okay, I'm the villain. Well, this is all going to be a whole world here. And I always admired the villains in films, TV shows. So I thought, well, that'll be fun. And then I, you know, shot the thing, and I had a good time doing it, and then I go to school. I'm like, okay, now it has shown. It's been on TV. This is amazing. And as I said, I wasn't terribly popular in school. And so I thought, well, hey, now I'm on television. Maybe, maybe this will help. And I literally, I walked on the grounds, 8 o'clock in the morning, and this girl screams as soon as I I'm the only one on the ground, and she yells on the top of the thing at me, you bitch! <laughs> oh, my God, what do I do? Do I go home? Do I just leave? Or do I? And um, I thought, well, I guess this is the beginning. I mean, this is how people are going to be. What do you do? And as I said in the book, it's absolutely true. At that second, it did dawn on me. I went, okay, this, this is what people are going to do. Do I run? I mean, I could turn around and go home and call my parents and get a ride or so. Or do I, what do I do? Because how I react to this, this is going to set the tone for the rest of the day. And so I looked up at her and I said, thank you, and bowed. <laughs> I, I took my curtain call. I was like, yes, ma'am. And I, and I thought, that's it. I am going to, I'm going to have to embrace this and run with it now. Or, you know, that's it. I'm, I'm chopped liver here. Can you talk about what you call the Bette Midler School of Overcompensation? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, this is so true. So, And I did. I was a kid, and I went, it's the Bette Midler School of Overcompensation. So I was very shy when I was little. And, you know, partly, yes, it was the abuse, but it was, it was small for my age. And, and, yay, I was smart. I got bumped up, like, half a grade. But when you're really – you're already small for your age and smaller than, like, everyone in your class. And then they're like, let's move her up a grade. So it's like, uh, so I was very shy, had everything going against me. And I was hearing about these actors, and I was very, I was so short also that um, they weren't sure I was going to grow. I kind of got to four foot eight and kind of stayed there for a while. And my mother started saying things. Well, Nancy Walker, this actress, she's had a good career. And I'm like, oh, great, I'm Rhoda's mother. Um, so that's her time, all these really short actresses. I'm five four now, thank you. I grew it. But I started reading about these actresses, and I read that. Bette Midler, you know, who's a huge star back in the 70s, so Bette Midler, this brassy, incredible, wild lady with the, the on-stage persona, that she was painfully, painfully shy all through, like, junior high into high school. And she sort of created this persona in public and on stage to sort of fight that. And then I read about that Nancy Walker, who played Rhoda's mom and, and many, many other great roles, she was to always play these tough, tough characters. And she said, no, no, very shy, very retiring, kind of scared of people, kind of created this character. And all her characters were these women people were terrified of. And I started reading about these actresses who were shy but played the complete opposite. And, and people were, if anything, intimidated by it. And I thought, well, here's, here's a good idea. <laughs> and, and so I called it the Bette Midler School of Overcompensation. And... I started trying these tactics. I was really young. Like I said, I was 11, 12 years old on the show. And I started, okay, what if when I walk into a room full of people and my immediate feeling is, you know, my stomach is doing backflips, I'm like, I should just leave. If I didn't leave, if I just marched up to someone, went, hi, <laughs> and started talking to people. What if I, I was bold and, and wore bright colors and marched in and was like, yes, I'm here. Hi, how are you? What would happen? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I'm already feeling terrified, like I'm going to die. It's going to get worse. What? No. And I started doing that. And it was, people don't know. They don't know. They don't know if you're shy or not unless you act like it. And 
it worked in this crazy way. It, it actually worked. And the other trick was my, my Auntie Marion, very shy mm. woman, brilliant woman, very shy. She said, you know, people talk about themselves. You go to someone at a party and you just say, oh, and what do you do? <laughs> she said, don't go on for days. She said, mm, oh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Really, you don't say. She said, you eat your sandwich and you drink your tea and you nod your head and they do all the talking. And she was right. So... <laughs> You can go to the party. You can go to the job interview. You can do what you have to do if you're shy. You can fake it. And there are tricks you can use. And and I have friends who are shy, and I encourage them because it's just, it's, oh, it's very painful. I hate being shy. But absolutely, I saw how a number of famous people did this. And um, it's a hell of a trick, and I highly recommend it. You began doing stand-up at a very early age. Mm-hmm. How did that transform into the one-woman show that has well, taken the world by storm, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch. Well, I was like, God, we're 15, and my dad is managing a comedy group. He's managing all these people, and there was this comedy group called, of all things, The Village Idiots, best name ever. And um, they were hilarious. In fact, uh, Jan Fisher was in The Village Idiots. She wrote the movie The Lost Boys. Mm. Mark Gansell went on to work on the TV show Coach. And Peter Jurisic, the actor Peter Jurisic, is in Babylon 5 and dozens of movies. But these people were all in this group. They all went on to be very famous. And um, so I was hanging around with them, and we'd go to the clubs. And literally, like out of a movie, I was heckling a guy. A guy was doing sort of an audience participation thing. And I was 15, right? So I started giving him a hard time. And he said the famous last words, if you think this is so easy, you ought to try it. Well, that was like daring me to do something. So next thing I know, I'm meeting with the village idiots and saying, what do I need to do? And they wrote me a stand-up act. And so I was 15 and a half when I first got up on stage. And by the time I was 16, I was doing four nights a week, the improv and the comedy stores, working all the time. And talk about uh, overcoming shyness. Um, So that really worked. And over the years, learning what worked, what didn't work, what audiences responded to, one of the things I saw is they all recognized me and they all wanted to talk about Little House. I would try to do stand-up and not talk about Little House. But as soon as I got to any point where I was talking to the audience, someone would say, you know, any questions? Yes, aren't you the girl who was on Little House on the Prairie? And you had to open with it. There was no getting around. It's like, yes, yes, it's me. And just like a... And I got a call to play New York. I was fantastic. I never played New York. And they said, but you need to do like an hour and a half. And I was like, good God, who's got an hour and a half? <laughs> and, and they said, oh, yeah, and Joan Rivers works this room. She's coming in like after you, so you, know, you, you probably need to swear more. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> and so I wrote an entirely new show. I thought, I've got to come up with something. So I did, it was all true stories. I said, well, wait, you know, a friend of mine said your act is great, but I like the stories you tell in the bar later. They're funnier. So I said, what if it was all true stories? It was all true stories from my life and all tied together with the running theme of, yes, people hate me. I was this bitch. And I did it. And I had a question and answer segment so the audience could participate. And they absolutely loved it. They went wild. And boy, the Q&A, I tell you, the Q&A segment is everybody's favorite thing. I love it. They love it. And I started doing that, and that was it. I said, well, this is the way to go. So I started doing that and adding to it and adding to it. It became this, took on a life of its own. I started getting requests like mad. And then this guy, Patrick, Patrick Lubatier, said, you know, we could do a French version of this. It would be kind of, I mean, you have to learn French. I have to do a whole lot of But it could be done. We could do a whole French version. I was like, you're insane. And then we did it. We completely did it, and we wound up doing the French version. And now I'm getting on a plane Sunday night to go to France and go do, like, 
six back-to-back shows. That is wonderful. And did I see you're doing a radio show as well? I know. Like, I don't have enough to do, right? So um, a friend said, why don't you have a show, a podcast, radio show? And there's a couple of stations in town that kind of do all the celebrity radio shows. All my friends were on them. And I'd been interviewed on most of them. And I talked to them. And um, over at uh, UBN, UBN Go, they said, yes, come on. And so every um, Tuesday at 5 o'clock is the Allison Arngram Show. And I interview uh, a lot of celebrities, many of whom are friends of mine, and I find interesting authors and really cool people. Or, as I say, it's Allison Arngram Show, where we talk about the things that make you feel good. And, you know, for instance, Michael Learned, who was on the Waltons. And yes, I've had lots of people from Little House on the Prairie. And the shows that made you feel good, oh, Anson Williams from Happy Days, all these really cool people. But people who are also doing something now, cause like Anson Williams, for example, now, he was on Happy Days. We thought we loved him. And he's an but, inventor now, right? Yes. Do you know his, his, his uncle was Dr. Heimlich of the Heimlich. Right, but he was on with us a couple of months ago yes, to talk right. about you that. Know, the drops, I have I have two of them in my purse right now, the little tubes, alert drops. <laughs> They're the greatest thing. And it's it's lemon. It's just citric acid. The lemon juice concentrates. So it can't, it's not going to hurt you. It's no caffeine, no drugs. And it works. You spray it on your tongue, and it's kind of like slapping yourself in the face a little bit. If you're driving, and, and as he said, and Heimlich said, drowsy driving is extremely dangerous. The statistics are just crazy, the number of people who die from drowsy driving. If you're driving and you need to stop and you think, I really, I got to stop, I got to go home, I got to sleep, I got to get coffee, stop for a moment and spray these drops on your tongue, and you're good. For, you'll get home. And then because it's not speed, you'll be able to go to bed. Um, <laughs> but it's it's amazing. And he's doing this, and he puts that out there. And, I, I mean, how many lives is he saving with these things? And I have to say, they're also really good for jet lag. Ah, perfect. You get off the plane, and, of course, me, flying ten and a half hours, right? And the jet lag always hits about the time you need to get your bags. And the jet lag's in your like, but I need to be alert for a couple more hours. i got to get a train. i got to get to the hotel. I can't fall asleep yet. And boom, alert drops. And it's perfect because then it kills enough of the jet lag. You're awake enough to get to the hotel, and then you can sleep. Well, Allison, it is an absolute delight to talk with you. I loved your book. Uh, we wish you continued success. And again, happy birthday. Have a wonderful trip to France. Thank you and so much. We hope you'll come back and visit with us again sometime. I'd love to. I'd love to. Now, you're out. You're in, in, in uh, Maine, right? We are indeed, yes. Okay, hi. I've been, I've been like, once. I went to Agonquit. It was lovely, and I have friends from Maine, so yay, shout out. Um, I'm in France, and then I'm in Fayetteville, Arkansas, um, the end of February, the 29th and 1st of uh, March. They're a lot alike. You won't be able to tell the difference. Uh, what? <laughs> France and Fayetteville. It's like the same place, isn't it? Yeah, you know, Fayetteville, Arkansas. I'm, think, I'm hearing that it's a very swinging place, actually. But, yeah, it's so crazy. This is what I do. I'm like, oh, I'm in Berlin, and then I'm in Alabama. So <laughs> kind of like all over the place. But, yes, I'm going from Paris to Fayetteville. That's, that's my schedule, seriously. Uh, it's all about the journey. Allison, thank you again so much for visiting with us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. That's Allison Arngrim of Little House on the Prairie. And, of course, you get a chance. Go read her memoir, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch. And what you can tell from the conversation, uh, funny, but also very, very inspirational, too. She overcame some challenges in her life, to say the least. So fun conversation there. When we come back, we dig into uh, the MASH Matters podcast with one of the hosts, Jeff Maxwell, who played Private Igor Straminsky. 
for the entire run of the show. That's next after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We're back on Downtown the Podcast. Our next guest played the part of Private Igor Straminsky for all 11 seasons of MASH. Anytime they were in the mess tent, there was Private Igor. He's also been in films like Young Frankenstein, Kentucky Fried Movie, and these days he hosts a terrific podcast called MASH Matters along with Ryan Patrick. We had a great time talking with actor Jeff Maxwell, who, as it turned out, has got some family connections here to the state of Maine. Give a listen to our conversation. Jeff, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Rich. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, I appreciate you asking me to be with you. Well, let's let's get it right out there. This is an inside job because you've got family connections to Bangor, Maine. I do. You know, before we get into the family connections, I really want to hear Shut Up and Eat. <laughs> That's a great title. I've said that to many people myself, so I have, I'm bonded with that concept. <laughs> it's a fun segment because it's ostensibly about food, but really whatever is on Joe's mind. Yeah, well, <laughs> well it's a fun title. I, I want to hear that show. <laughs> Uh, yes, I do have family in Maine. Uh, my wife is actually from Maine. She was uh, born and raised there, and so uh, she had to get out because it was too cold. Um, but uh, her brother uh, is still there, and he's a very successful guy. Uh, he owns a music store there, as you and I talked briefly about, and uh, he's a good guy. Should I say his name? Sure, why not? Yes. Freak him out. Dana Flood. My brother-in-law, Dana Flood. So, hi, Dana. There you go. Northern Kingdom Music. Go. Stop in and say hello. There you go. Free and, plug. And clearly, you have good taste marrying a woman from Maine. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. She she uh, she influenced with all those lobsters. She influenced me quite heavily with those <laughs> lobsters. Well, let's talk about MASH and your, your gig and your work for many, many years as, as Private Igor. How did that whole thing come about? Well, how did that come about? Um, yeah, that's a good question. How did it come about? I kind of don't remember. <laughs> uh, it's a blur to me. Um, it's a long story as to how I actually got there, but I'll try and capsulize this. I was working as a casting director uh, for 20th Century Fox for a little bit. And um, I then made a lot of friends as casting with cast, other casting directors. And then I left. I retired because I wanted to go off and do something else. And I decided that I didn't want to go off and do something else after a while. And uh, went back to my casting director friends and say, hey, gosh, you know, I'm a little depressed because that other thing didn't work out. And they said, well, there's this show called MASH, and it's going off the air. It's going to be canceled, and we can get you on it and just see maybe you like being an actor. And I said, no, nah, I don't really like actors. 
<laughs> so uh, anyway, they put me on it, and the rest is history. That's kind of the way it worked. And you, know, you were there uh, right through to the, the final episode, uh, Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen. And I, I was thinking about this the other day, and we, we talk about the acting in this cast, and the, the depth of that cast and the talent is so deep. And uh, yeah, sure, there's Alan Alda and Wayne Rogers and McLean Stevenson and Loretta Swit, but my gosh, um, yourself... People like G.W. Bailey, uh, Kelly Nakahara, uh, Alan Arbus, Edward Winter. It didn't matter the size of the role. There was so much talent there. There was a lot of talent. I think also there was a lot of goodwill. Um, the people who were involved were there because they wanted to be there. They wanted to be involved. They loved the concept. They loved the writing. Uh, we all loved each other. Certainly there were problems after you know nine or 11 years. People disagree about things. But everybody really liked each other, which is kind of strange for a television show. And, yeah. and I think that really uh, spoke to the longevity of the show as well as the, the acting and the participation by, from everybody, whether you had one word or you had a whole half-hour monologue. That was what was going on. You wanted to be there. You loved the words and you loved the people. And I think that's, that's what made it shine. And Mike Farrell uh, told us one of the things that shocked him. When well, he... don't, I don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no, no, no. Mike, he's something's wrong there. He was, uh, he what was, did he say? Okay, well, what did Mike say? He was so surprised that the, the director and the writers actually wanted to get input from the actors. did up to a point, uh, and people have asked me that, gee, did, did you have any input? Could you say things in yourself? Not really. I've always said no, uh, you couldn't. But it's not necessarily true. There was a section of, of time when you first got a script and everybody sat around a table and read through the script. At that moment, you could make suggestions and you could say, no, nah, I don't think I would say that, or no, that's not the way this character would do that. At that point, you could. Once the script had been finalized, however. You couldn't get on the set and say, you know, I'd really rather say butterfly than uh, thoroughbred. <laughs> that wouldn't happen. You were not allowed to improvise to say anything else except what was on that written page. But Mike is very right. Up, up to that point uh, in the, the table reads, yes, you could make suggestions. And in his, uh, you know, from his point of view, he'd never had any television production offer him the right to, you know, suggest ideas. So that was very surprising for him. And for most TV shows, they didn't do it that way. They wrote a script and said, here, this is it. Say these words and leave me alone. So that's what, that's what made MASH uh, a little bit more uh, um, appealing to all the actors as well. We're talking with Jeff Maxwell here on Downtown, and we'll talk about the podcast in a moment. But I have to ask you about uh, Young Frankenstein. What was the experience like working with Mel Brooks? Well, uh, <laughs> I had a, uh, I was, <laughs> so funny people, so many people see me in Young Frankenstein, and yet I didn't ever say anything. There were uh, points at which I did, but they cut out a lot of the various sequences where some of the audience in that scene were asking questions and com commenting on what they saw. So, unfortunately, along with a lot of other good people, I got cut out of those things, but uh, it was fun watching Mel Brooks. He's a genius. What can you say about Mel Brooks? I mean, he was very funny. I didn't have a great deal of, you know, relationship with him. I said hello to him and stuff, but he was great to watch uh, do what he did. He, he is a genius. I'm, what can you say? He's a funny guy, um, and uh, what are you going to do? He's Mel Brooks, boy. 
And Kentucky Fried Movie, I think, is one of those that doesn't get enough uh, enough respect and entered in the conversation of of some classic comedy films from the 70s and early 80s. With so many talented people involved in that as well. A lot of people, and I got into that movie because I was a friend of John Landis. At one point, I worked as a mailboy at 20th Century Fox. <laughs> I've done everything at 20th Century Fox. <laughs> And uh, he and I were male boys, and so we would try and out-funny each other running through the halls of the executive building. And we got to know each other, and uh, eventually when I started doing MASH and he got out of that and got this movie deal, he came to me and he said, hey, look, I got this really kind of funny sequence. Will you do it? And I said, sure, absolutely. So that's how that came about. We had a great time doing it. John is a he has a sort of an infamous reputation, but he is a truly kind, warm-hearted, wonderful person. And I love him dearly and have known him for a billion years. And uh, we had a great time doing it. It took an entire day a shot at a theater, actually, right around the corner from my house. And uh, we had a great time. It was the feel-around section uh, segment <laughs> of the film. And there were a lot of great people in there, a lot of great people in the film. So, yeah, it was... a. Uh, it should win an Academy Award, I think. Well, is it retroactively, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> let's talk <laughs> about the... Too. What the well, yes, while we're at it, let's talk about MASH Matters. Uh, how did this happen? Did Ryan approach you with this idea? Wouldn't leave me alone. <laughs> Couldn't stop him from calling my house. It was driving me crazy. He, he and I met years and years and years ago doing a, a radio uh, interview when I wrote my book called Secrets of the Mash Mess, The Lost Recipes of Private Igor. And that came out around 90, 1995 or 1997. I kind of don't remember which it was now. And uh, I was on his show. I did an interview in, with him, and uh, we had a good time. And uh, he just said, hey, do you mind if I keep in touch over the years? And I said, sure, let's do that. So we did. And uh, about a little over a year ago, he called me and he said, hey, I'm thinking about doing a MASH podcast. Will you be a guest? And I said, no, but I'll do it with you. <laughs> and he said, well, okay. And that's what happened. That's what we did. So we, we have a ball doing it. Ryan, you know, we come at it from different perspectives. I, to me, it was a job. I worked on the show. I didn't grow up watching the show and falling in love with all the characters. I fell in love with all the actors and all the people that I worked with for umpteen years. But it wasn't an emotional experience for me in terms of it was, like it was for an audience. So he comes at it from that audience point of view. And we kind of thought that the two different perspectives would be interesting. Uh, it seems to be because a lot of people seem to be downloading it. So I guess it's working. Oh, yeah, it's um, great. I, and I was just listening the other day to uh, your summary of season three and I thought it was fascinating. And, and you mentioned and you talked about that, that your perspective is very different. When, you're, when people are talking about their favorite episodes, for you, obviously, it's going to be based on what your character did in that episode. It is, yeah. It is, really, because that's when I was there and that's what I saw. The rest of it, yeah, who cares? <laughs> as long as I get the check. And I want to go back to Mash Matters and, and Ryan. I, I have to say, I, Ryan is a, a terrific guy. He's a, an amazing broadcaster. I loved his show. He does an incredible job. He's a marketing guru. He's a very talented actor. And now he's directing a play. So 
this guy is a is a very talented man, and and I am very uh, thrilled to be working with him. I wouldn't do it with anybody else, quite frankly, but I knew that there would be some chemistry and some fun that he and I would have doing Mash Matters, and uh, he he's the best. I I I just adore him. He's a he's a great partner to have. Well, it's a lot of fun to listen to, and you've had a number you. of your cast mates in there this week and last week. A uh, double episode with Loretta Swit, who we were fortunate to have on last year. And could there be a nicer and more passionate person on the planet than her? You know, she's terrific. I, I adored her when I was working on the show. I, I adore her today. She's a, a wonderful person. She does good things in the world. She tries to help people and animals. Uh, she's a tremendous actress and a tremendous artist and just a, a very, very wonderful person. So, I'm very fortunate to have worked with some incredibly uh, talented and and uh, nurturing and wonderful people like the people that were connected with MASH. And we have some surprises coming up. I can't divulge them here, uh, but we do have a lot of surprises coming up on MASH Matters as well. So anybody listening, don't hesitate to go to MASHMattersPodcast.com and take a listen because you'll hear some fun stuff. It's great. It's a ball. And I, she made a great point, too, in talking about the show and the actors and, and as somebody who teaches high school actors and, and has done so a little bit of amateur acting myself. She talked about the importance of reactors. And it seems like so many people in that MASH cast were great at those reactions. And that's such a, a key part of success that sometimes people watching don't notice. I think reactions would what were what uh, I got paid for. <laughs> I, uh, that's that's what was my strong suit is reacting and things that happened not only in the food line but out of out in the the camp as well. Uh, that I because I for a long time I was a, a part of a comedy team in nightclubs and so my job was to kind of react to a lot of funny things that were going on and that we we did as as routines. And I took that with me. I learned a lot of it uh, after nine years of doing that. So I took it with me into the show as well. And that really helped me be able to understand how to react. And then, you know, like you say, as an actor, you've got to listen and and behave as as what you hear <laughs> in terms of what you hear accurately. And that was always good to do and easy to do because all the other actors were, uh, were so positive in terms of being uh, uh, providing something to listen to and to react to. So it was a good job. Well, Jeff, we loved your work on the show. The podcast is absolutely terrific. Again, MASH Matters. Subscribe. You're going to love it uh, with Ryan Patrick and connected to Maine family-wise. We count him now as a Mainer, Jeff Maxwell. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us today. Rich, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And uh, go in and buy some uh, trumpets from uh, Dana. <laughs> be helpful. Thing. We'll do that. We could use the money. If you come up to visit, let us know. We'll take care of the lobster on our end. Uh, you, uh, you're, I'm, that's a guarantee. You're done. All right. I'm, I'm there. <laughs> All right. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. You're welcome, Rich. Thank you. Well, that's Jeff Maxwell, Private Igor from MASH here on Downtown, the podcast. Some good stuff there. Our thanks to Jeff. And also actress Allison Arngrim, and thanks to you for joining us for the podcast. If you like it, spread the word. Give us a, give us a fine review and tell your friends. Get them to subscribe as well to Downtown the Podcast, brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Carrie Haskell, this is Rich Kimball, and we'll see you next time here on Downtown.